Welcome to Markets Plus, where leading experts from across BMO discuss factors shaping the markets, economy, industry sectors, and much more. Visit bmocm.com slash markets plus for more episodes. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. Uh, my name is Ted Dunn, and I head up coverage industries and structured finance for Bank of the West. As many of you know, uh, recently joined the BMO family, effective Feb 1. Um, and I really want to start this discussion out with a question. Where were you? Do you remember where you were when you first found out about the liquidity issues that were hitting Silicon Valley Bank? I think if you're on this call, chances are you remember that moment. But more importantly, what was going through your mind? What were you thinking about? What became top of mind? If you were on the West Coast and you were banking with Silicon Valley Bank, I think terror might have been a word that was going through your mind. Uncertainty, worrying about whether you could make payroll, um, if you were with another regional bank, chances are you were wondering, gosh, could this happen to my financial institution? What should I be preparing for? What should I understand? Um, and I think all of these components put together are what this uh, panel discussion is all about. It's making sure that we are prepared and understand um, what the options are, are what the issues are, what the future may look like, and how to prepare for it. If you recall, I think all of us a year ago were dusting off our playbooks, uh, recession playbooks. We'd gone through them many times. We probably did sensitivity analyses of different uh, objectives and, 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 and forks in the road. But the one we probably never thought about was bank failures and the implication on the financial system, and more importantly, the implication on our organizations and what they meant. Um, I don't know about you, but I think most of us got tremendous amount of calls. If you were a CFO or a treasurer, you were getting calls from the board, from ownership, from vendors, from suppliers, trying to understand potential impacts. Uh, if you were bankers, you were working very closely with clients or prospects that were affected, making sure that you were taking care of them. Um, and uh, all of these things combined created a new um, ecosystem for us to, to worry about. So as we sit here today and what this next hour is all about is really a discussion around what that means. And we put together a distinguished group of panelists here, uh, colleagues of mine that I'm excited to uh, have a discussion with around this topic. Uh, think of it as the financial analyst. You got to have the economist. And then you got that expert, uh, client expert on, on treasury products. So uh, my name again is Ted Dunn. I head up coverage. I, I introduced myself earlier. Uh, you see on the screen now, uh, James Fotheringham. Um, I, you did see him, there he is. Uh, he is a financial analyst, part of our capital markets division, knowledgeable on all things financial services. He's gonna create some tremendous insights on regional banks, behaviors, what's going on, what the outlook is, uh, where we're heading in that world. 
Uh, bottom left, you see Scott Anderson. Uh, I like to say economist extraordinaire. Uh, he was our chief economist uh, at Bank of the West, now part of the BMO uh, team. You may have seen him on uh, CNN and, and many other uh, shows uh, and was uh, a Wall Street uh, top prognosticator, uh, which we were always very proud to, to have. And his insights are going to be quite uh, useful today, particularly given the recent announcements that have come out in the press. And then bottom right, you see Oscar Johnson coming to us from Chicago, uh, head of uh, commercial sales uh, of Treasury and Payment Solutions. Uh, he has been deep in the weeds with all our clients and his folks. He has gotten tremendous insights and guidance uh, to the corporate client set of BMO uh, and prospects, which I think you guys will find uh, quite interesting. Let's start with James. So, James, you're the financial bank expert. Uh, this was something I don't think any of us saw coming. Um, what's your view of, of the impact that this has had uh, to date and kind of near long-term uh, vision of, of what we might expect down the road? Well, thank you very much, Ted. Thanks for the introduction. Thank you very much for inviting me to, to join this extremely timely discussion given the, uh, the Fed announcement this afternoon. Uh, so starting with the, the U.S. banking system, you know, we had our very own March Madness this year uh, with a liquidity crisis last March that resulted in the failure of several uh, very large regional banks. Um, now, since then and recently, funding stability has returned to the U.S. banking system. There is no imminent sign of incremental bank runs, thank goodness. But uh, we believe very strongly that banks, from a fundamental perspective, remain in a very tight spot. In the near term, banks are facing liquidity risk. In the medium term, they're facing capital risks. And in the longer term, looking out to next year, they're facing credit risks. So liquidity, liquidity risks in the near term, capital risks in the medium term, and, um, and, and credit risks in the long term. That's a tight spot to be in. And I just want to unpack each of those three risks. Um, in the near term, you know, my clients, those who invest in U.S. bank stocks, are desperate for assurances on uh, bank liquidity. Um, so the, um, the crisis occurred, and it was a crisis of confidence, and it was a crisis of contagion, which inspired bank runs from several regional banks. Uh, both in the U.S. and one very notably over in Switzerland. The regulatory response to that liquidity crisis was a series of one-off decisions. And that is to say there is no systemic approach to solving the bank liquidity crisis last spring. Um, when uh, depositors at Silicon Valley, for instance, that had uninsured deposits at the bank were guaranteed after Silicon Valley Bank failed. It did not encourage confidence in depositors at other banks. When JP Morgan was gifted First Republic Bank, um, depositors who were uninsured at other banks did not feel better about that one-off solution because they felt that there was less of a probability that they themselves might be bailed out in the event of a problem. Um, I think the solution here uh, needs to be systemic before we can, you know, you know, sound the all clear signal for bank liquidity. Um, and I think that solution would come in the form of reenactment of the TAG program, 
uh, which we put in place during the GFC and was, was very, very successful at inspiring confidence among depositors. Unfortunately, that requires um, con congressional approval and the politicians aren't there yet. Um, so in the near term, you know, we're only a few headlines away for, from another liquidity crisis of confidence. Um, and I, I do hope that uh, the regulators will take a more systemic view towards the solution before we get there. In the medium term, uh, banks face the risk of higher capital requirements. We were going there anyway through a, um, a Basel III endgame, as we call it. The regulators were putting in place new regulations as to how to calculate risk-weighted assets in regulatory capital ratios. Um, we have a stress test uh, coming at the end of this month, but I'm sure that we'll hear about incremental stress scenarios that banks will be put to in future years as a result of what we learned last March. Um, and the bank regulators are taking a very, very close look. As you mentioned, Ted, none of us saw this coming, including the regulators. And so they are anxious to change uh, the way that uh, they treat capital on certain types of securities. All of this will result in higher capital requirements for banks, not just for the smaller regional banks, but also for the GSIBs as well, for the very large banks. So again, Basel III endgame proposals, we expect any day now. The stress test will come at the end of this month for all banks and probably some commentary with those stress tests hinting at what next year's stress test might look like, especially incremental uh, scenarios that in, in incorporate rate risk. And then um, sometime later this summer and in the autumn, we expect uh, the regulators to propose changes to the capital treatment of available for sale securities um, in terms of forcing the mark to market AOCI through regulatory capital for all banks with assets greater than 100 billion. But also making changes as to uh, you know, the size, restricting the size of HTM bond portfolios um, and, and restricting also the type of securities that can go into those HTM portfolios and the duration on those securities. And then longer term, banks face credit uh, risk. Uh, you know, the Fed seems to be, um, as they announced today, uh, quite determined to continue to hike, maybe even two more times. There's no, um, there's no hope for a, a rate uh, cut later this year as there once was. Um, and, and it looks like they're quite focused on curtailing inflation, uh, which will um, inspire some sort of an economic cycle. Well, you know, bank uh, credit risk is extremely sensitive to an economic cycle. If the unemployment rate continues to go up, it will affect unsecured consumer loans. And as the value of commercial real estate, especially office and um, brick and mortar retail uh, commercial real estate, as, as, as those values, collateral values fall, uh, SEM banks will be um, extremely concentrated in terms of those exposures. So when, when rates rise, you know, things within the financial system tend to break, and we've seen that, unfortunately, this rate cycle. Um, banks are in, are in a tight spot right now. They're facing near-term liquidity risk, medium-term capital risk, and longer-term credit risk. Thank you, James. Um, so I got a question here. Uh, in your mind, you know, as you, you start to kind of let the, 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 the haze kind of lift a little bit and we're coming out, you know, and and we, we are in a, a fairly resilient business here in, in the financial sector. Um, are there winners and losers in your mind that, that will come out of this? 
What's your view on that? Absolutely. And when I'm highlighting risks, there are certain institutions that are much less exposed to those risks than others. So on the liquidity, liquidity side, there are banks with a very small proportion of their deposits, as we call them, runnable. Um, and so, you know, larger institutions in particular, um, international institutions in particular as well, have uh, more reliable access to bank funding. On the, the capital side of things, I'm afraid um, the rules will change and force higher capital requirements for everyone. But the largest banks were already held to many of those capital standards that will become new for smaller banks. And so large banks that were already held to higher standards that, that boast very high capital ratios are, are much less exposed, obviously, to incremental capital requirements from the regulator. And finally, on credit risk, we don't know what the economic cycle is going to look like exactly yet. Um, but uh, but that economic cycle will have disproportionate effects on different types of assets on balance sheets. And so to have a diversified uh, loan book is extremely helpful going into a crisis. Concentrated exposures can get banks into trouble, but uh, diversified loan books uh, really do help. My point on, on banks being in a tight spot is not necessarily that they're all exposed to these risks, but just those three chronologically tiered risks are uh, driving a lot of uncertainty, which makes it tough from a bank, uh, from an operating perspective. Got it. And so if, 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 if I take that and take it one step further, if I were a corporation, I would be looking and making sure that I understand my financial uh, institutions positions along those curves, liquidity, credit, uh, capital. Um, as far as really understanding potential risk down the road um, with with those institutions. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Solid funding platform, first and foremost, high capital ratios, and a diversified loan book. That's what you have to look for. Perfect. All right, one last question. We'll make it quick. So why increase capital right now? Why, why, why is the Fed going to do that? It's going to tighten credit. It's going to limit capital. Is it the right time to do that? Well, I think um, if you're looking at it, and your 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 question implies that you're looking at it from a uh, an economic perspective, I think there's very little doubt that the regulatory reaction to the bank liquidity crisis will only exacerbate the impending right. economic cycle. I think that's going to happen. So, so. Um, I, I, you asked me whether or not it ought to happen. Um, I, I'm just telling you that it's most likely going to happen. Yeah. We were going Indeed. in that direction anyway. I think to answer that question, you need a bit of history. You know, at the during the GFC, we the banking system had about three percent of capital for all of the assets in the system, and that obviously wasn't enough during the Great Financial Crisis. Um, Post GFC. Uh, the regulator forced the bank system to deleverage, and so that 3% TCE to TA went all the way up to 9% until about right. 2016 when there was a, an administrative change and new regulators came in. And under Trump-appointed regulators, the banking system has retraced about half of their deleveraging efforts post-GFC. So we now sit around 6% TCE to TA, and I'm not saying that's not enough. 
but the new regulators who have come in with a new regu- uh, with a new administration were pushing for higher capital requirements because of that historic phenomenon and definitely the bank liquidity crisis have only emboldened that effort and so we were going higher anyway but we're we're definitely going higher for sure and that's been in the cards for a while got it thank you all right, let me pivot over to Scott. It's the economist's turn. Uh, big day, big news today, and I'll leave that for you. Um, Scott, your your views, um, you know, how did this liquidity crisis and how does it affect, you know, um, in your mind, you know, what, what is happening today in, in, in the economic world and, and where do you think it's headed? Thanks, Ted. Uh, a lot to unpack there. I, I'd say that, um, You know, we dodged a little bit of a bullet in this banking crisis so far. I mean, the positive spin here, and I think this comes through in the actions of the FOMC today, is they really think a lot of that panic phase of this banking crisis uh, that that we're talking about today is is largely over. Um, You know, the, the liquidity facilities that the Fed, the Treasury, and the FDIC put in place really backstopped uh, bank liquidity as, as their lender of last resort. And we're talking about the bank term funding program, the discount window, and the fact that they allowed uh, depositors with greater than 250,000 be made whole all, all certainly helped. So a lot of that panic phase really happened in March and April, but that doesn't mean all is done. And we're, we're all been kind of bracing for uh, the credit impacts. We know banks uh, from the Fed senior loan officer survey data that the banks did marginally tighten credit further uh, after the banking crisis occurred. I think the good news on that, if you're looking for a silver lining, is it was uh, just marginal. So it wasn't that, you know a drop, jump off the cliff, uh, uh, 2008, looking at the abyss sort of moment, at least at, at the moment. But I do agree with James that we're entering a a more prolonged period of banking stress going forward. And what I'm looking at as an economist is really, and its impacts on the economy is, you know, the rising uh, potential for rising credit losses and delinquencies going forward with the slowing economy, which is very much in place and will likely remain in place over the coming year if the Fed goes ahead with a couple more rate hikes. Um, We're also looking at an inverted yield curve probably for at least another year and very inverted yield curve compared to historical norms. Um, so this means net low net interest margins for banks going forward. And of course, slowing loan growth comes along with a slowing economy. So we're uh, monitoring all this data from the banks on a weekly basis. We look at the Federal Reserve's H8 data and others. Um, and what it means, I think, for the banks is that we're entering a zero, more of a zero-sum game. So if if your bank is, um, you know, a strong player, uh, really positioned conservatively, they're, they're in a good position to gain some market share from its competitors. And I think BMO uh, really does enter into that category of bank. Uh, but the weaker players are, are still going to be struggling here. Um, and as I look at the data, it's really quite encouraging. You know, if I look at bank deposits, which had, were hemorrhaging in March and April, we're looking at 20 or 40 percent annualized declines on, on a weekly basis. Uh, for about two months, um, it really stabilized. In the last three weeks, uh, total bank deposits are running, are, are increasing, and they're ri- rising at about an 18% annualized pace. So, real good news there. Um, we're also seeing banks not having to access those liquidity facilities the Fed put up. 
uh, as much. In fact, in eight of the last 11 weeks, uh, banks have used less credit that the Fed has made available. So that means there's almost very little of Tom's you know, there's only $3 billion in borrowing through the Fed discount window today. Um, total bank borrowing is down, like I said, in eight of the past 11 weeks. Um, we've had a little bit more pickup on the bank term funding facility, but it's up very marginally from April, only about $20 billion or so. So I think the liquidity situation has stabilized. I'm not saying we're in the all clear, but it's, it's stabilized. And and you did see that in the Fed balance sheet as well. Um, you know, the Fed balance sheet increased by almost $400 billion in the early days of the pandemic, really over a couple week period as the Fed set up these liquidity facilities. But since then, the Fed has continued on its quantitative tightening. Uh, banks have paid down some of that borrowing. And so uh, the Fed's balance sheet is down another $340 billion. So almost all that liquidity the Fed put into the banking system in March and April has been uh, taken out of the system today. So um, again, a sign that things are really uh, stabilizing. In terms of the loans, uh, you know, we're seeing a very mixed picture there. I think we are seeing some evidence of further deceleration in loan growth, at least uh, the preliminary day we've been seeing for April and May. Um, but it's not, again, falling off a cliff. We're going from like overall loan growth around 6% um, for all all bank loans. Now we're down to something like 2.5% um, growth rates. But we are seeing categories of loans that are certainly challenged. Uh, you know, CNI lending is now contracting. We're seeing it also in home equity lending. And auto loans is another category we're actually seeing declines in lending. Uh, we're seeing slowing in residential and commercial in uh, credit card lending, uh, but not dropping yet. And then we're seeing it, we actually, surprisingly, we saw a pickup in commercial real estate lending. So I don't know if that's for folks really in need of liquidity or all the uh, Chips Act stuff that's going on, but we haven't really seen that collapse yet in commercial real estate lending, at least if you look at the Fed's data's perspective. So a little bit mixed picture there. I, I, I agree with James. I think on an incremental basis, the bank credit crisis does do some of the work for the Fed. Um, you know, we, we think it's been equivalent to about a 25 basis point hike uh, from the Fed that we've seen so far. Maybe not what uh, some of the analysts on, on the street thought it might be, uh, but it's definitely going to help out the Fed uh, in terms of their uh, tightening path. But a lot of that was already kind of baked in to our forecast. Um, so let me pivot a little bit here and talk a little bit about what it means for the overall economy. I think, um, you know, when I look at the U.S. economy, we, you know, really continue to muddle through here uh, with economic growth. In fact, the economic surprises, as the Fed alluded to, uh, in their FOMC statement, and I'm sure Jerome Paul is speaking right now uh, in his press conference, uh, kind of repeating some of the same messages, is the economic surprises have been largely to the upside. Um, a lot of economists, including ourselves, were looking for some mild pullback in growth, maybe starting as soon as the second quarter. That, that really hasn't materialized. Um, in fact, um, despite rising interest rates, elevated inflation that continues to be a a concern and the regional banking crisis, the economy continues to grow. And I mean, that's the big surprise. That's the big headline uh, right now. So what is it? It's the resilient consumer. Uh, you know, the consumer has just been, you know, surprising on the upside. 
it really was a couple of months. We had a big spike in spending in January around the um, Social Security COLA adjustment increase of, of an 8.7% 8, 8 increase in incomes. Uh, and then in April, we got another boost to consumer spending, a lot of that coming around travel and tourism and services demand. Um, uh, but the bottom line is the consumer is still spending. And part of the reason here is the consumer is in good shape. When I look at household balance sheets overall, and that, that doesn't mean all consumers are in good shape, but household balance sheets are, are very, very good. If you look at household debt as a share of GDP, it's around 72% in the first quarter of this year. Uh, back before the Great Recession, it was 100%. So people have really pulled back on their debt um, as a share of the economy. That's good news. If you look at debt service burdens, households are able to service the debt they have. Uh, this debt service burdens are the lowest we've seen. You have to go back 50 years to see them as low as they are today. Um, now, everyone's worried about inflation, but uh, by our estimates, excess savings from consumers since the pandemic began are still in the neighborhood of about $1.8 trillion uh, of excess savings. Now, inflation is eating that away. Uh, about $820 billion has been eaten away of that savings because of the high inflation, but there's still a lot of spending power there. So, and of course, all of this is being backstopped by a labor market that continues to outperform. We had 338,000 jobs created last month. We've been trending at 314,000 jobs so far this year. That equates, if, at, if it continues at that pace, we, we could create you know 3.8 million jobs this year. Um, so these are very, very good numbers, and, and it's, again, making the outlook a little bit cloudy on when this overall downturn or recession may, may play out. Now, with that said, we are still in the mild recession camp or mild downturn camp, and we do think it will start to reassert itself in the second half of the year. A couple of reasons why I say that. One, we're starting to see some tremors in the labor market. Um, just in the May uh, employment data, we did see a big drop in household employment. That's usually uh, at printing points. That's one of the first categories where you tend to see job loss. Uh, we saw the unemployment rate tick up three-tenths of a percent from 3.4 to 3.7, still low by historical standards. But economic research um, has shown that if the unemployment rate rises more than 3.5 tenths of a percent to half a percent uh, in a very short period of time, that's always preceded a recession. So, again, pretty close to recession signals there already. And we just got a big jump in the jobless claims data as well. Um, I'd also point out that the sentiment numbers aren't as good as some of the hard data we're getting from the labor market and the consumer, and you look at things like the purchasing managers indexes for manufacturers and services, it's a pretty downbeat message. Manufacturing has been in contraction territory for seven months now in a row, and the service sector seems to have skipped a beat a little bit in, in May, so uh, you know, basically around break even. So uh, we're keeping an eye on, on that. The other thing I'd point out is the conference board's leading economic indicators, which are 10 indicators that tend to lead economic downturns by about six months. That's been showing uh, a negative trend now since the Fed started hiking rates last March. And there, it's now a very strong recession signal still coming from, from that measure. And so that's things like uh, housing starts, jobless claims, uh, employment are all included in, 
in that measure along with some of the survey data. The other couple of things I'm looking at, which the market might not be focusing in on, corporate profits in the NIPA accounts, the, the GDP accounts that the government produces has actually been negative over the past two quarters. Usually get that happened before you know, companies start to lay off or cut back on their investment spending. So that's, that's a negative trend to keep an eye on. Um, the other is the gross domestic income, which if you add up all people's wages and profits in the economy, um, that's been negative for the past two quarters. So maybe the G these GDP prints aren't quite as strong as the advanced readings are giving us. It's supposed to equate to GDP. They're certainly going in different directions right now. So that's a, that's a warning sign. And I guess my final point would be the yield curve. Yield curve is more inverted today than you know, I've ever seen it going back to the 1980s. You know, that just shows you how restrictive the bond market thinks monetary policy is today. Um, and when you look at those, some of those measures, the three-month, three uh, three 10-year yield curve has been inverted now for about seven months. You look at you know, past history, um, usually between eight and 16 months of inversion, you start to get a recession in the United States. So we're coming up on that, you know, that historical record. The average is about 12 months, so we could still go a few more months here if history is any guide. But it does suggest we're pretty close to a downturn here. Um, in the Fed's own recession probability models, which are based on yield curve, just in May gave a 79% probability of a recession in the United States over the next 12 months. So uh, to wrap it up, Ted, you know, it's uh, it's a very mixed bag. We're really at a turning point here. We're kind of going from this twilight of boom to bust, and it's really hard to call when the recession will actually start, given the momentum we still have. But we think we're very close, and we think by the second half of this year, we'll start to see those, those negative GDP prints. But... Um, uh, very interesting time. And of course, with the Fed continuing to uh, lean to the hawkish stance, I think the risk of a harder landing is certainly there. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Scott. It's an interesting time to be an economist. I'm sure when you were in college and they would have thrown all this at you, you would have been, wow, that's quite a quite a thing your ceases. Um, so when you look at the Fed, they kind of have to balance two things uh, simultaneously. You have monetary policy, on the one hand, and then you got financial stability on the other. They don't always kind of go hand in hand, um, or do they? And and how do you think the Fed changes one or the other? Are behaviors being driven by one or the other um, or not? Well, thanks for the question, Ted. I, I do think um, the Fed's doing a little bit of a juggling act here, and maybe a little sleight of hand like a magician would. Um, you know, they're really trying to handle the financial stability concerns and the banking crisis uh, through the liquidity facilities that they've set up, the discount window, the bank term funding program, and through prudential supervision and regulation. So some of the changes that James was talking about that the Fed is envisioning on the regulation side to really uh, help restore stability and, and soundness to, to the overall banking system. But it's a really a true track system. And on, on the other hand, the Fed still is is trying to uh, direct monetary policy towards the inflation mandate, which is bringing inflation back down to 2%. So they continue to go ahead with rate hikes. They're continuing to, to threaten to do more rate hikes going forward. And 
you know, despite what some analysts were looking for, the Fed has continued to do quantitative tightening. So while they're giving banks liquidity through these some of these lending and liquidity facilities, the with one hand, and the other hand, they're taking liquidity out of the banking system through the quantitative tightening program to the tune of about ninety-five billion a month. So um, yeah, we'll see how long the Fed can keep that up, but that's that's the preference. Um, and then they're hoping that will get them closer to their goal of the 2% target. Great. Thank you. All right, Oscar, your turn. Um, you're, you are living it and breathing it in real time. You know, I think, you know, the effect of, you know, bank failures and liquidity crises at banks have really uh, impacted the, the, the clients in, in a real way. Um, can you share with us kind of your thoughts of what you've experienced during this time? Yeah, uh, thanks, Ted, and happy to engage and also happy to be aligned as one team um, and one BMO. Uh, in, in our business, we have the accountability for managing treasury relationships with commercial clients. And to add context, when combining BMO and Bank of the West, we're now one of the top five commercial banks in North America. Furthermore, our uh, clients are coast to coast and spans a wide range of industries. So we get a good look at what's happening in the economy and what's happening with our commercial clients. We pride ourselves in proactive communication uh, with a goal of bringing ideas and strategies to our clients and prospects. Most recently, our phones have been ringing excessively with calls from clients and prospects. And some of the common themes that we've heard include the following, number one, how safe is the organization? How safe is BMO? Um, another thing that we hear oftentimes is we have multiple banking relationships and we're not comfortable with some of the banks. How should we think about diversification? How can my company maximize yield? Um, if we move our business to you, how long will it take to get this process completed? You know, some of the questions also that we're hearing from clients relate to conversations that they're having with their boards of directors. And one of them would be our board is asking for clarity on our liquidity strategy. Can you provide perspective on how other clients and or prospects are thinking about it and or making modifications? You know, they also, they being boards, are asking CFOs to explore fully insured and other off-balance sheet solutions. And corporates are also paying more attention to counterparty risk. Great necessities call out great virtues. And what I what what I take from that is those who are performing the best are those that are most prepared. And what does prepared look like for our clients and prospects that we're having conversations with? Number one, they're super diligent with cash forecasting. Um, they actively engage with their bankers and talk and discuss liquidity strategies. Those who also understand the importance of payment optimization as a method to unlock working capital from their balance sheet. And then another thing that's really important and we hear oftentimes and we've brought it up multiple times as well is the strength of the banking environment. And, and our clients are now taking a very close look at the soundness of their banking partners and looking beyond just their financials, but looking at kind of the regular regulatory standing requirements, their loan to deposit ratios, um, and also their deposit mixes. So our clients are very in tune with all that's going on in the envi environment. They're thinking about the impact that it's had to them. And they also want to make sure that their banking partners are strong and financially sound. Thanks, Oscar. 
Um, you know, one question that comes to mind, you know, if I'm a client, I'm sitting there and, and, and I have one bank I've banked with for 20 years and I, my cash management sits there, my line of credit sits there. You know, there's a sense that 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 there's a need to, to, to go broader, that, that maybe one bank isn't sufficient. Um, is that the case or, or is it sometimes the case? When is that? When, what, what are your thoughts around when that matters? Yeah, I, you know, the question comes up a lot and we hear it directly from clients. And I can understand why companies would want to employ or explore uh, deposit diversification. And what we say is, number one, and we talk about BMO um, in terms of what our strength is. Um, and we talk about our safety and how, you know, you are safe in most in, in instances where you don't have to always diversify your deposit or the number of banks that, that you're using. You know, one of the downsides that we think about um, when we mitigate diversification is, um, number one, the ability to maximize yield um, in having your funds in what, at one institution. Uh, the other is it's sometimes inefficient for CFOs and folks in the accounting function to manage multiple banking relationships, and you're using additional time and effort and energy to manage said relationships. So um, understanding how certain um, companies' policies are asking them based upon the size of deposits to develop relationships with strong institutions, uh, that's what we're seeing a lot of, and, and, and it positively impacts some of the larger organizations that um, have not been impacted as much. Yeah, agreed. You know, it's interesting. It's out west where we felt this impact in real time. Uh, you know, it was interesting. I think very quickly, uh, clients and started to realize that they needed to have a checklist, for lack of a better word. Um, so, as we were bringing on new clients, uh, we were being asked uh, a list of criteria that had become important. Uh, not only from an operational standpoint, which is critical, and that's the hard piece to move, as well as the liquidity. So I think that has become the best practice out in the market um, as we bring in new clients. And I would encourage everyone on this call to make sure that you are clear and understand um, the the risks of the financial institutions uh, that you're that you're dealing with. So with that. Let me open it up to our panelists if they have any final words of wisdom uh, for everyone as we wind this thing up. Can I just say, you know, we're not looking at a repeat of the Great Recession here. Uh, as James alluded to, it's not a credit crisis like we had going in uh, to the Great Recession. And so, you know, if we can solve some of these liquidity issues, regulatory issues, I think uh, will go a long way to, to solving the problem over the medium term. I, I couldn't Perfect. agree with that more. I think the the solutions were difficult to find back in 07 and 08. And uh, today we have the tools. I think uh, we learned a lot from that crisis. And uh, we have a lot of levers that we still have, haven't needed to pull yet. So, you know, the system appears stable right now. There isn't a solvency concern. There isn't a credit concern. And on liquidity, if need be, there are levers to pull. Um, but as you said very well, Ted, I think, uh, you know, clients need to do their homework in a way that they probably didn't feel like they needed to prior to last March. Yeah, and, and, and my closing comment would be aligned with what everyone else said, but if it's the three P's, it's planning, preparation, and also partnership. 
uh, and those that you're working alongside. Perfect, guys. So, James, Scott, Oscar, thank you. Um, it's uh, incredibly insightful, uh, candid. Uh, appreciate uh, the nuggets of wisdom, I think, that we've taken away from this uh Amazing. Thank you so much. Hope you found this insightful. Look forward to uh, joining and listening to other BMO uh, webcasts in the future. So take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more episodes, visit bmocm.com slash markets plus. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.